Freedom, love, justice. Three ideas our world loves dearly. But how well do we understand what it is that we love? And is it possible that our love of these things is leading us to places we do not really wish to go? In this series, we open up these issues in light of the Bible. In the Gospel of Jesus, we discover how these ideas have meanings that are much deeper than we could ever imagine. They show us the richness and beauty of what God has called us to in Christ. The second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and that's found on page 1137. One Corinthians thirteen. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Well, good evening again. Now let's pray. Father, we've heard your word read. We ask that you would now help us to think really clearly about our world and about what it means to love so that we may hear it afresh and with great clarity. For Jesus' sake, amen. Our world, uh, I think, uh, has a strange, strange kind of attitude towards the idea of love. Uh, on the one hand, we're all at least at least officially, thoroughly over it. Uh, You know the Beatles song, All You Need Is Love. Uh, It has an appeal to us now simply because of its sheer strangeness. Uh, It's a thought that now seems, I think, genuinely bizarre, Uh, even though it was really only from very recently. In fact, there's some here. Richard, my friend Richard here, do you remember that song coming out? Yes. It is so good that Richard is here uh, because he... 
will show me that what I'm about to say is just Gen Y nonsense. But, you know, somehow I think in the last few decades, that thought that all you need is love has gone from having some weird, if idealistic, plausibility to being merely quaint. Wow, they really sang that back then. Oh, bless. Yet on the other hand, we continue to produce tributes to romance as fatuous as love actually. Even romantic comedies that are supposed to be modern and gritty, which just means pornographic, like Friends with Benefits. Some of you have seen this. Have you seen it? Anybody seen it? Yes. See, good on you for admitting. You know, they end up equally kind of vapid. Um, let me read you the Wikipedia plot summary of the conclusion. Okay, I'm sorry if I'm spoiling it, but I'm not spoiling much. Dylan realises how he really feels about Jamie after this talk with his father and decides to go after her. He calls Jamie's mother to set up an excuse to get Jamie to go to Grand Central Station, thinking she will be picking up her mother, and arranges to have a flash mob dance to closing time, set up to surprise Jamie at the station. When the moment comes, he catches up with Jamie and tells her how he really feels. Surprised and happy by this turn of events, Jamie tells him to kiss her. After sharing a passionate kiss, Dylan suggests that it is time they go on their real first date. Oh dear. They go to Pershing Square Cafe across the street, and although they attempt to keep the date casual and relaxed, the film ends with them in a sensual embrace and passionate kiss. Now it's... it's, it's <laughs> but that film grossed $150 million. And that these popular tributes to romance persist in an age that has done everything in its power to make them ridiculous. We may not like it, but it actually says something about the hold that the idea of love has on us. This is an ideal that we are still very, very attached to. And if we can't bring ourselves to dispense with nonsense like this, how much less are we willing to give up the idea of love as such? Love, that is, in a wider and richer sense than just romantic attachment. Love not just of intimate partners, but of friends and family and, say, precious things. Loving, to put it simply, is central to who and what we are as human beings. We are creatures, as one philosopher has put it, to whom things matter. And the things that matter most deeply to us, the things that we love are a big part of what makes our lives meaningful. In fact, we suspect that, as anybody seen the movie Tree of Life, Terence Malick's movie Tree of Life? Of those who've seen it, did anybody like it? Okay, I did. But it has this line, you know, at the beginning, it just says, the only way to be happy is to love. And you know what? We suspect that's true. And the reason for this is that Love is the way in which we experience things as valuable. When I love something, like an animal or an idea or a friend, I see that something as precious and good. And not just precious to me and good for me, but precious and good in itself. Certainly, I also experience this as being good for me. 
But that being good for me is because the thing that I love is good in itself. Do you know what I'm saying? When I love something, you know, I do enjoy it. It is good for me. I enjoy that. But that's not all that's going on. I'm, I'm also just delighting in the real goodness of something other than me. And, and thereby, I'm actually discovering what, my, what it means for, for something to be good for me. I discover that my good lies in the preciousness of this thing that I love, the goodness of it. Uh, it's a bit of an abstract thought, so I'll give you a quote from a philosopher called Harry Frankfurt. You've also got an outline, by the way, which has some of the quotes that may be helpful, but this quote will be on the screen as well. This is a non-Christian philosopher. Uh, it's a bit involved, but it's, it's really helpful, I think. <clears throat> he says, Insofar as we care about something at all, we regard it as important to ourselves. But we may consider it to have that importance only because we regard it as a means to something else. So if you're fixing the fridge, the screwdriver is important, but it's, it's not that you're particularly in love with the screwdriver, it's that it can do something for you. When we love something, however, he says, we go further. We care about it not merely as a means, but as an end. It is in the nature of loving that we consider its objects to be valuable in themselves and important to us for their own sakes. Okay. Uh, You don't have to agree with that, by the way, but I think it's quite a helpful idea. You see, love, we can lose that slide, thanks. Oh, blanket, we don't need the next one. Thanks. Love is about being moved by the goodness of something, seeing and experiencing something as good and so worthy of our care and attention. Love takes us out of ourselves as we're captivated by the value of something good. And this is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing, which is another reason that love matters to us. Our loves very often are the best things about us. They bring out the best in us and somehow they seem better than we are without them. In experiencing and giving ourselves to the goodness of something other than us, we experience something beautiful about ourselves. And not, and not just beautiful something that we feel is kind of deep. Our loves are a source of, of depth and, and meaningfulness and, and almost mysteriousness in our lives. Um, and that depth, of course, is what has fascinated poets and philosophers over the ages. Uh, here's another great quote from uh, Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, difficult name, but it's actually kind of easy, this one. He says, "'From whence comes love?' Where does it have its origin and its source? Where is the place, its stronghold from which it proceeds? Certainly this place is hidden or is in that which is hidden. There is a place in a human being's most inward depths. From this place proceeds the life of love. You see, our loves matter to us because they open up a depth and quality in our lives. That is utterly central to them. All of which, we've got to now go on to say, is why some of the most influential ideas of our time are very threatening. 
For in our day, the idea of love has been dismantled by the claim that in one way or another, we are really fooling ourselves when we think that love is something real and good and deep. Now, this claim comes in a variety of forms, but most of them have to do with our biology. Um, As early as the 19th century, a guy called Arthur Schopenhauer summed it up by saying we'd all been just hoodwinked by nature. Nature can attain her end, he wrote, only by implanting in the individual a certain delusion. And by virtue of this, that which in truth is merely a good thing for the species seems to him to be good for himself. Now, Schopenhauer was a bit of a bitter guy. He hadn't been very romantically successful. Uh, and so he may, you know, maybe this is speaking through that a bit. But these ideas are not limited to him and they've been very powerful. The idea is that love is actually nothing more than a highly developed biological adaptation for survival. Uh, More recently, this idea has become more complex with uh, things like Freud's ideas, uh, the claims that we are driven at our deepest levels by um, kind of subconscious longings and attractions, uh, maybe that originate in, in our experiences as infants of our parents. Uh, Human beings may think that their loves are noble and virtuous, we're told, but really they're just the product of subconscious animal forces. Uh, Now, anyone who has been told that their wife looks like their mother will know how annoying and awkward these ideas can be. Um, But contemporary scientific thought actually takes them quite seriously, or at least versions of them. Uh, Love is simply the product of evolutionary drives and processes. Uh, Here's how one psychologist sums up much of this thinking. Uh, We've got the quote on the screen, I think. Ah, No, we don't. Previous? All right, I'll just read it. It's pretty simple, actually. So let's lose that one, if that's all right. The aim of life, he says, is to find... This is a, a psychologist called Stephen Frosch. Oh, there it is. There you go. He doesn't actually agree with this, but he's kind of summing it up. The aim of life, he says, is to find fulfilling personal relationships that are founded on this biological base, which will lead not only to the perpetuation of the species, in brackets, romantic love leading to sex and procreation, but also to the successful raising of children, attachment behaviours, protecting them against predators and other dangers. One implication, he suggests, is that the feelings that go along with attachment, love in all its aspects, from romance to love for a parent or child, these feelings work biologically in the service of this social orientation. Love is passionate because, as a feeling, it promotes the kinds of behaviour that humans need in order to survive. What has happened in our age, you see, is that the depths that so fascinated Kierkegaard and others have been plumbed. And at the bottom of them, it seems, we didn't find anything very interesting. So are we kidding ourselves when we think that love matters? We instinctively feel that the answer is no, but we are unsettled. 
How can we be sure that what we take to be the source and center of meaning in our lives is at the end of the day more than socially mediated forms of inherited animal urges and primal longings? But this is not the end of our problems with love. Because this uncertainty is coupled today with a loss of nerve about what love requires. Our experiences of love, as we saw earlier, uh, they involve delighting in the good of something. Seeing something as valuable in and of itself. And this in turn implies that we will want to protect and care for this thing to help it flourish as the thing that it is. Harry Frankfurt, again, is really helpful. Love, he says, is most centrally a concern for the existence of what is loved and for what is good for it. The lover desires that his beloved flourish and not be harmed. When we love something, that is, we want that something to go well. If it's an artwork, we want it to be preserved and displayed. If it's a dog, we want him to be, or, or her to be healthy and have fun. If it's a child, we want them to grow up strong and healthy and happy and good. And now thus far, I hope fairly uncontroversial. Uh, but in our day, what this involves in the way we treat other people has become complicated. Why is that? Well, it's because we no longer have a clear idea of what it means for a person to flourish. And we're very nervous about imposing our values. Now, of course, we know some things, right? We know that it's good for people who want to have an education to be able to have an education. We know that it's good for people to be warm and well-fed. But it quickly becomes tricky once we get beyond that. We might try to think of it in terms of, well, flourishing means somebody fulfilling their potential. That's what it's about. But of course, that only begs the question of what that actually involves. And soon enough, we often come down to the idea that it's really about someone's free choices. What it means for somebody to flourish is for them to be able to make of their life what they want to. Love, then, we guess, involves respecting and supporting somebody's autonomy. But then we have a problem. For what do we do when someone we love wants something that we think is bad for them? Perhaps a relationship we feel is destructive, or a way of spending their time that we think is really beneath them. Or what about if they've adopted a religion that we think is badly mistaken. It could easily seem to us and to them very disrespectful and intolerant to criticise them. And yet it's tricky because we also know that we're all perfectly capable of making bad decisions. So they are too. Is being tolerant really all there is to loving. Now, maybe we can manage these kind of cases well enough, but what about when things get really painful? What if they're deciding to do something that we think is deeply wrong, say to have an affair or to abandon their parents? What does it mean to love them then? 
Well, what about if our beloved is set on doing themselves harm? This is, of course, the dilemma we've got into over euthanasia. Is somebody's choice to end their life a choice we should respect and support? Is that what love requires? What about if it was a young person? A friend, say, who just suffered a terrible loss or been paralysed, perhaps. What about if we're talking about self-harm or suicide? Now, many of us, I think, will instinctively want to insist that these are not choices we should support. Because we feel that to affirm those choices is, is not at all, really, to delight in their good. To, to see them as valuable in themselves. These are cases we feel in which people's choices are somehow less than them. Yet on what basis do we insist on this? How do we know that we're right to judge this way? What right do we have to think we know better than they do what they are and are worthy of? When faced with these choices in real life, of course, we don't have time for such abstract questioning. Yet these are real questions, nevertheless, and they, they are there in the way that we think today. And they raise doubts and make us lose our nerve about how we should treat people. So today, then, I think we are very uncertain about love. We know we want it and we know we need it, but we're increasingly unsure about what it really is and what to do with it. Is this uncertainty a sign of progress as a society? Are we right to be pulling back from our instinctive feeling that love is real and important and deep? Well, the Bible, on the contrary, suggests that that is not at all a sign of wisdom, but of its loss. And I want us now to turn to consider what the Bible says about this. Because according to the Bible, love is indeed at the very heart of what human life is all about. Because it is the very heart of what God is all about. Uh, now, obviously, I've taken quite a long road to get to the Bible uh, but I've done so because I think it will enable us to appreciate more fully the account of love we find in the Scriptures. So let us begin then, again, like we did last week at the beginning. According to the Bible, we love most basically because the world that God has given us and made is deeply and richly good. This is one of the central ideas of the opening chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, which describes God creating the world and filling it with a rich variety of creatures. And at each point in the narrative, we hear the refrain over and over, and God saw that it was good. And then when the work is completed, we read that God saw all that he had made, and indeed it was very good. The good creator makes a good world, a world that radiates goodness, that is just soaked in value. The goodness of things, that is, is real and independent 
of us. It's almost impossible to overestimate the importance of that point. Or it's different from the way we think. Value, that is, is not just in our minds. It does not depend on our opinions about things or decisions. It is real, as real as the rocks and the water. And what this means is that so far from being a delusion, love is actually the most reasonable way of responding to the world imaginable. Because love, as we have seen, is about seeing and delighting in the goodness of something. And not just seeing something as good from my perspective. And that, the Bible tells us, makes perfect sense. Because the world that God has made is good. It really is good. And it's full of things that really are good. And human life, therefore, is in its essence about loving We are hardwired for it. In fact, more than this, failure to love is wicked. Because the good that God has made ought to be admired and cherished. And so love is not just something we may do, it is our duty. We are obliged to love. There is also, the Bible tells us, a shape that this loving is meant to take. The good things of the world are of different kinds and so are to be loved in distinct and different ways. They are to be loved as the things as they are and not as something else. The goodness of trees and possums and human beings lies in their being trees and possums and human beings. And in the place that gives them within creations. Maybe you don't love possums, but they are a good thing. Uh, And they're there in the roof. Um, And, you know, they are not loved rightly if they are loved as something other than what they really are. Now, this introduces a danger, another danger. The danger that our loves may be misshapen and so become actually bad for us in one way or another. Uh, We actually know what this danger looks like in all sorts of ways. Uh, It's what's happening when the enjoyment of wine becomes an addiction, when the love of a pet becomes a passion that leads somebody to disregard other human beings, when a parent's care becomes their life's overwhelming and kind of destructive obsession. Love is about delighting in and cherishing the goodness of something. And that means that love can go wrong when it misunderstands what that something really is and so where its goodness really lies. Now this happens most disastrously when anything is loved as if it were God. That is, when anything or anyone becomes the object of our worship our adoration. This is the great failure that the Bible calls idolatry. According to the Bible, at the heart of what is wrong with the world is this most destructive failure of love. Our giving to creatures, whether bits of wood or human beings or possessions, 
the love that belongs to the Creator. And this is all why, at the heart of the Bible's moral teaching, is a two-part command, which shows us the shape our love ought to have and summons us to it. Uh, We're commanded to love God first, to love God as God, and to love our neighbours as ourselves. Uh, These commandments are central to the Old Testament. We heard the first one in Deuteronomy 6, but it's in the teaching of Jesus that they're brought together with the most clarity. Uh, Have a look. The passage is also on your outline, but it'll come up on the screen from Mark chapter 12. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, giving a straight answer for the first time in his life. The most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Human beings are made for love, the Bible tells us. But we are made to love in a particular way. To love God as God, which means first and in everything. And to love our neighbors as ourselves, which means as human beings, like ourselves, as valuable and as precious as ourselves. Now, as we've already noticed, this is something we have catastrophically failed to do. The story of human love is the story of love's failures, of misshapen loves, destructive passions, obsessions and bad priorities. And it's a story of failure to love as fully and deeply and widely as we should, of carelessness when there should have been care, callousness when there should have been compassion, betrayal when there should have been faithfulness, of selfishness instead of love. The Bible will not allow us to close our eyes to these failures of love. But only because they open a door to the most profound thing that has ever been said. And that the Bible says about love, which is that although we have failed to love as we should, God loved us. And he loves us. The Apostle John wrote in the letter of 1 John in the Bible, This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What happened in the life and the death of Jesus was that God loved us, the God who made us and who sustains us and who has no need of us, who is perfect in himself. He gave of himself to save us, to rescue us 
from the hell that our own failure to love him had led us to. By sending his son to die and take away our sin. God loved us. He cared about us. He valued us. He loved you. And in that we discover what love means at its most perfect. We discover a love deeper than we could possibly have imagined. Because God loved us, you see, not because we were good, not because we were particularly beautiful, but despite our having become evil. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man somebody might possibly dare to die. It does happen. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Jesus Christ, you see, God delighted in our good, even though we had forfeited it. Though we had rejected him, he gave of himself at infinite cost so that we could be with him. He lavished on us. That's the language the Bible uses. He lavished on us a love we could never have deserved, a love that was sheer grace. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. I, I wonder if you, if you get that. If, if that has gotten into your heart. Because it is the most astonishing claim. It is the most beautiful truth. But that is what Jesus shows us. That is what Jesus dying on the cross shows us. That the God of the universe genuinely has you in his heart. And you know, when you get that, it changes everything. And it opens up the possibility of a renewal of our loving. John, in the letter of 1 John, continues by saying, Dear friends, since God so loved us... We also ought to love one another. He says later, we love because Christ loved us. Jesus had said the same thing just before he died. He said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. See, the knowledge of of God's love for us can empower us to love generously and, and it can teach us to love rightly. And it's that renewed love that flows out of the love of God that was described so beautifully in our second reading in 1 Corinthians 13. I'm sure you're familiar with this passage, but let me just read again those verses at the heart of it. They're on your outlines as well. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. 
Now, you may well have heard this passage at a wedding. Uh, It's frequently chosen at weddings, and I think understandably so. Uh, It's a beautiful description of the kind of love that somebody might hope would characterize their marriage. Yet that can easily lead us to miss the truly shocking thing about this passage, which is that it is meant as a description not of the special love that belongs to marriage, but of the love that all Christian believers ought to have for each other. You see, the gracious love of God in Christ opens up to us the possibility of our loving as we were made to, as we should. Loving not just our nearest and dearest, That's easy, Jesus said. Everybody does that. But our brothers and sisters in Christ, and beyond that, our neighbors, and even our enemies, with a love that is costly, a costly sacrificial giving of ourselves to the good of others. This kind of love is love with backbone, with muscle. Love that goes beyond tolerance and uncritical affirmation of others' wishes. That doesn't mean it starts imposing things on people. Love, Paul says, is patient, and it always trusts. It makes space for people, and it is not self-seeking. There is a deep respectfulness in this love, but this love also goes beyond mere respect. Respect for somebody's autonomy Because, see in verse 6, it says, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And so this love will have to chart the difficult course of seeking to understand and pursue what is true and good for people. Which is why this kind of love is, in fact, neither popular nor easy. If people knew what this passage was really saying, they would not choose it so often at their weddings. But this is the way that Jesus loved us. Okay, well, where does all this leave us? Let's conclude. And let me conclude by trying to bring us to the heart of what we've discussed this evening. In the face of the uncertainty about love in our age, the Bible declares with full voice that love matters. Love is not simply a biological byproduct, though no doubt there's all sorts of biological things going on, but it's not just that, something we can scoff at or ignore. It is the heart of human life in a world that is full of goodness. But the flip side of that affirmation, that wonderful affirmation, is a challenge. The challenge that our loves are meant to take a certain shape. They are meant to correspond to the reality of the world God has made, both in what we love and in how we love. And this is a challenge, isn't it? Because we don't at all like the idea that our loves, even perhaps our most genuinely felt and deep loves, we don't like the idea that they could be open to criticism or to the suggestion that they should take a different shape to what they do. As we we saw before, that our uncertainty about what love requires can be difficult and painful. 
but it can also be kind of convenient because it can allow us to see love as sacred and beyond criticism and so see love as a kind of justification for whatever we want it to be and whatever we want to do. But the Bible calls us to surrender even our loves to criticism. And it does that so that it will give us an even greater gift, an even greater gift than the way we experience our loves at the moment. The message of the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. A love which came to us when we were at our worst and saved us from our self-destructive choices. A love that we could never have deserved and that can fill us and rebuild our hearts from within, make us overflow with love for others and teach us to love right. So friends, uh, let me invite you this evening to receive and rejoice in this beautiful news of Jesus. That although our loves are messy and broken and confusing, they are not nothing. They are the deepest things about us. And they do matter. And through Jesus Christ, we are offered not their negation, but their fulfillment and perfection. As we are invited to become lovers in the richest and fullest sense possible. Because although we did not love God, he nevertheless loved us. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for this good world that we have made and for the love that you give us. And we praise you even more than that for your love for us when we were at our worst, while we were still sinners, in sending your Son to be our Saviour. Father, we pray that this love would transform our hearts and teach us to love rightly. And we ask that you lead us as we go about our lives in thinking carefully about what that means. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.